I read the uh, book of Proverbs almost every month, most of my life. I read it through the first time when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, one, ch uh, one chapter a uh, day. 31 chapters each day that uh, the third, I'd read the third chapter, the 10th, I'd read the 10th chapter, 16th, I'd read the, read the 16th chapter. So Proverbs every month, every month, every month, almost all of my life since I was a sophomore in high school. Now, if you read the book of Proverbs, it's basically uh, a book of cause and effect. So it, it says, if you do this, this will happen almost every time. Do this, this will happen. And so with my kids when they were growing up, we would do uh, every spring, we would plant the garden and uh, I would empty seeds in my hand. I said, see these, these are corn seeds. Now when you plant one of these, we're gonna get a bean plant. And they would laugh and say, no dad, we won't get a bean plant. I said, well, what will we get? She, they said, a corn plant. Every time? Every time. Plant a corn, corn seed, you get a corn plant. Every time. That's called cause and effect. This hap you do this, this happens every time. Plant a bean seed, you get a bean plant. Plant a radish seed, you get a radish plant. Plant one seed, you get one plant. That's the way it is. That's the way God made it. That's the book of Proverbs. Not dealing with corn seeds and bean seeds, but dealing with life. If you do this, this will happen as you live your life. And so if you plant weed seeds, don't be surprised if you get weeds. Whatever you sow, that's what you will reap. And in, Paul says the same thing. He said, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that's what you'll reap. And so most of my life as a Christian, I've been what I would call mechanical in the sense that it's not... Uh, mystery. Uh, you know, the word spiritual sometimes gives the connotation of we don't know. It's just sort of a, a fog out there and we just sort of guess. Uh, my Christian life, my Christian walk has been based on principles, rules, laws of God in His Word. Do this, this happens. Do this, this happens. If you don't want this to happen, don't do this. If you want that to happen, then do what God promises will happen as a result of that. So it's fairly straightforward. It's not uh, mystery. It's not difficult. It's not rocket science. It's just farming. It's just farming. Because I grew up on a farm, that kind of sense makes sense to me in that what you do determines what you get. How much you do determines how much you get. It's just the way God made it. And he illustrates all of his laws by creation. Uh, he gave us creation as a way of knowing what his word means. We look at what he created and how it works. We understand his word. We understand the principles of life. And so, again, it's not uh, a real mystery. Way back when I, we first started the church 40 years ago, we were living in a house on a farm and a lady in our church called, and her husband grew peppermint. Back then, everybody grew peppermint. And she said, uh, do you know the farmer that you are next to? And I said, yeah, we've had lots of conversations. She said, uh, interesting little statement, she said, he's a pagan. 
<laughs> I said, I kind of surmised that from our conversation. And she said, did you know that his peppermint yield in the valley is the, is the highest of any peppermint farmer? I said, I didn't, didn't know that, but I, I, I'm not surprised. It's really good-looking peppermint. And she says, I don't understand that. I said, what is it you don't understand? My, far, my husband is going broke raising peppermint, and he's a Christian. That guy's a pagan, and he's getting rich. Now, I was 29 years old, and I was talking to an older lady, so I was careful. But I wanted to say, you know, probably doesn't have a whole lot to do with whether he goes to church or not. It probably has a whole lot to do with basic laws of agriculture that he's discovered and follows and that your husband hasn't, and because of that, he's not making any money raising peppermint. I didn't say that. I just said, you know what, I'll certainly pray for you that God blesses your farm and kind of let it go with that. And so it's not a mystery. You follow certain agricultural laws and you have a bumper crop of peppermint. You break those same laws and you don't, regardless of whether you go to JBC or not. Uh, there's just laws of life that apply in every area of life, whether we're talking about finance, about business, about farming, whatever it is, but especially about living life, uh, having a marriage, raising kids, all of those things. There's principles in the Bible that say, if you do this, this will happen. When I started pastoring, there was a movement. Uh, the word movement means there was kind of a surge of interest in a particular way. It was called the church growth movement. And it became very popular at the initial onset and then became very unpopular. And the reason it became unpopular because it was so uh, mechanical, the way I just described growing peppermint. Now, I loved it because it made perfect sense to me because it was just like when we farmed. And so what they did in this movement is they would identify churches that were growing, reaching lost people, and they would investigate what they were doing. And then they would do another church and another church and another church, churches all over the world and various cultures, and they would find the common denominators, what was common between these churches that were growing. And the reason was to find principles that then can be applied to churches that were not growing. And so with pastors that weren't growing much, it made them feel uh, guilty or it made them feel a variety of things. And so there began to be this major pushback against the movement in the sense that it was uh, too much human effort and not enough of God's working. And I thought, I wonder where we got the idea that God works and blesses apart from our effort. I wonder where we got the idea that God blesses and works apart from us following certain principles that are observable and discoverable, uh, like growing tomatoes or growing corn or uh, producing milk with cows. And so I became an avid follower of church growth uh, movement and the books that were written and began to apply those principles to this church in the sense of what works, what doesn't. Uh, what uh, have dis churches discovered that bring people to Christ and, and what churches that do things that where nothing happens. And so over the years, I've been unashamedly committed to discovering those principles, those guidelines that are observable in life, 
by those who are successful, and then making application of them uh, to our own situation and circumstance. So we're talking about how to be holy, how to please God with the way we live our life in such a way that He would bless us. And so often that is looked at as sort of a, uh, a mystery, God's sovereignty with little that we would do in pursuit of that, at least not much that we could really define. And uh, because I am so goal-oriented over the years, I've set goals about things that I believe produce growth in my life. I've taught others to set goals to produce growth in their life and often get pushed back for the, same very, for the very same reason in that it, it seems sort of mechanical. Uh, it seems like a lot of human effort. And the fact is that there's a genuine partnership, a real partnership between me and God and pursuing holiness. There's a partnership between you and God and pursuing holiness. That's why there's so many people that aren't holy because they don't do anything. Uh, they're not obedient. They're not faithful. They're not responsible. And they just sort of expect that if they show up to church periodically, God somehow will do something and they'll become the kind of person they would like to be. So we're going to go through as we talk about this topic of how to be holy topics, and I'll approach them in a very uh, one, two, three, four, kind of like the way you tune up a car. Now, if you ask me how to tune up a car, I'd say this is what you do first, this is what you do second. I'm restoring a 1960 must, 1969 Mustang, just finished rebuilding the motor, and so as I started that project, uh, there was the first thing, the second thing, the third thing, went through a series of steps, got it all rebuilt. Now, I'm just about ready to start it, and you kind of cross your fingers because when you start the motor, you don't want to hear this knocking sound. You want to hear a nice purr, smooth running sound. So oh, I'm hoping that it turned out really well. If I followed the principles and did everything right, the motor will run well. If I follow the principles, do everything right, this motor will run well. And so I believe... Uh, the Bible teaches us those kinds of principles and guidelines on how to live the Christian life and live it well. So I grew up in a church that said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. There was a whole bunch of don'ts. Never did say how, uh, what the uh, method was the, the, of becoming holy. It just had a list of things that we weren't supposed to do. It was a long list. We couldn't own a pool table. I couldn't go to movies, couldn't go to a bowling alley. I remember the first movie, I think I told you this already. The first movie I went to was Sound of Music as a senior, and we did a skip day, and I was really afraid my pastor was going to find out. And Sound of Music, I was watching that, I thought, wow, this is really good. Why would this be wrong? And uh, so I started going to movies after that. Didn't seem like that was a big deal. In your notes, number one, God's will and desire for each of us is that we grow in our character, grow in our character grow every day more and more, become like Him so that we will enjoy, He will enjoy us and we will enjoy Him for all eternity. We will enjoy Him and He will enjoy us because we're like each other in character. That is His goal for our life. That's my goal in my preaching and teaching is that you would become like Him and that we would enjoy Him for all eternity because we are like Him. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy 
Be holy yourselves in all your behavior, in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So when we were raising our kids, we had a little command that was a little bit, uh, I guess, more modern than be holy. It was be good. We would say to them, be good or be nice. Those covered everything. Everything that they knew to do was be good or be nice. Uh, Matthew 5, 48, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That doesn't mean sinless, it means character like Christ. Number two, in order to successfully grow in holiness in our life, we must be diligent and disciplined in pursuing character growth. And so you've heard me say this numerous times before, becoming holy is like learning how to play the piano. If you decide to learn to play the piano and you think, okay, what's the first thing I need to do to learn to play the piano? You could figure that out. You would assume, okay, I need to take lessons from somebody that knows how to play the piano. And so you would, you would uh, do a little searching, hunting, finding out who gives piano lessons that's in your area that's not too expensive, and you would start taking piano lessons. And the person giving you the lessons would give you some... Uh, some exercises, some finger exercises, some music, starting simple and progressing to more and more difficult. And that whole process, you would understand that's how you learn to play the piano. You go from simple to hard over a period of time, and you do a lot of practicing. You do a lot of practicing, you put in the effort, and you're diligent. That's the same way you grow your character. It's the same way you become holy. Um, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, seeing that his divine power, God's power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So we have the power, we have the ability to become holy because he gives us the power through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, precious and magnificent promises, that's the Bible. That's the Bible. And the content of it that we read, precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, partakers of the divine nature, that is, you are like Jesus in character because of his power and his promises, his principles, his guidelines, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust now, for this reason, very reason, apply all diligence, all diligence. And so if we were to talk about <clears throat> a couple of people and say that individual is, really grows, has grown a lot to be like Christ, that person hasn't. Most of the time, the difference between an individual that grows rapidly to become like Christ in character, that becomes holy and righteous and pleasing to Him in all that they do and say, it's because of the diligence that they apply to the process and the reason that another person doesn't is because of little diligence. And so if you talk about somebody that plays the piano very, very well and someone who plays uh, terribly, and you say, what's the difference? Is it talent? Probably simply diligence. The amount of practice that they put in dictates how well they play. What is true of playing the piano is true of living the Christian life. What you put in is what you get out. How hard you practice is how well you play. 
Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, in your brotherly kindness, love. Those are character traits. Add one to the other by diligence. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, are increasing, they render you neither useless, useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He lacks these qualities, is blind, short-sighted. He's forgotten his purification from his sins, forgotten who he is. Number three, as we pursue character and work hard to become righteous, there are certain disciplines that are very effective in producing growth as we faithfully follow them. So the average person, average Christian, be good, be nice, be holy, be righteous, grow, become like Jesus. And then, okay, how do I do that? Uh, it's basically the thought of just trying harder. So if you tell me to play the keyboard for Jerry and nothing comes out but noise, and you said to me, try harder. Would that make sense? I can try hard all night long, but I don't have the ability to play the piano because I've never practiced, I've never been trained. I don't know how. So the average Christian in growing as a Christian, simply trying harder just goes in a circle. They fail and they succeed a little bit and they fail some more and they succeed a little bit. So the question is, what do you do? What are the the principles what do you practice uh, there's some very very clear instructions and guidelines in the Bible on how to become increasingly more holy for faithfully reading the Bible and memorizing is one of those disciplines that results in rapid growth as we faith as we are faithful to it every day so hopefully when we get done with this series if I say to you be holy you'll say yeah I can do that I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this. All of those in obedience to God and His power, His Spirit working in me will produce a character change as I work with Him and following the principles that are in His Word. And so one of them is read the Bible and memorize it and study it. 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow. You may grow in respect to salvation. So it's no mystery. The Bible... Reading it is a supernatural event in which God blesses and works and transforms us from the inside out. Psalms 119, verse 9, How can a young man, my Bible, I've scratched that out and wrote old man, uh, how can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart. That means I've memorized it. I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. So, I spend 30 minutes every day memorizing Bible verses. And uh, it's a discipline. It's a, it's a technique. It's a tool. It's a practice. It's like practicing the piano. I spend 30 minutes memorizing the Bible because I want to become holy and righteous, and that's a discipline that will produce that in my life. That's all review, new principle. Now, number five, another important principle, discipline, is to examine our life, confess all known sin every day. <clears throat> so the question is, is that a mystery? 
hard to understand, sort of vague, or is it pretty clear? I sin, you sin, and if I think about my day tonight before I go to sleep, I can identify some events and some circumstances during the day in which I sinned, and you can as well. Now, I have a goal that before I die, I'm going to have a day, at least one. And when I get to the end of the day, I'm going to look backwards in the day and say, that's a good day. I didn't sin not even once. That's a real possibility for anybody. To say that we all sin doesn't mean that we sin every day. Uh, so far, that's been my habit, probably years, but I have a goal. I'm going to make at least one day before I die, one day all the way through, that I don't blow it, not even one time, and I can go to bed and say, oh, Lord, thank you for the power of living in a way today without sinning. But I already can think of several. I don't know what your sin habits are. Mine are primarily with what I say out of my mouth and what I think in my head. Uh, I haven't robbed a bank. I haven't hit anybody. Uh, I haven't done any of those kinds of things for a long, long time, but I have said things that are hurtful uh, pretty regularly. And I've had thoughts about you. <laughs> I won't tell you who and what. But they're sort of spontaneous, but sometimes I just sort of camp there because I like it. And afterwards, oh, that was bad. And so I get to the end of the day, identify the things I've said, the things I've thought, and I confess them to God as sin. People will ask me, what if I can't remember them all? Here's the rule. Confess all known sin to God. And somebody will say, well, what about ones I can't remember? Let me say it again. Confess all known sin to God. K-N-O-W-N. Known sin. Ones you can remember. Ones you're aware of. If you can't remember it, don't fret about it. God will bring it to mind if it's important. Confess all known sin to God. If you do that every day, one of the things that will happen is your ability to recall and be sensitive to the sins that you commit will increase, and you'll have no problem recalling. And you probably have to have a notebook to write them all down uh, as, you, as you recall them. But confess all known sin every day, every day, every day. 1 John 1, 9, if, first word is the most important, if, we confess our sins. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So sometimes people will say to me, well, I thought we got forgiven of our sins when we became a Christian. You did, positionally. That is, no sin is going to keep you out of heaven. But as you live this life as a believer, as a son, a daughter of God, sin that you commit that you don't confess have consequences in this life. Have consequences in this life. Now, when the kids were here, I, I think I told you this story, but it's kind of fun. Uh, the kids are all here. The, one of the things they do is they get the boxes out of the attic with pictures in them. You know, the old way they used to do pictures on paper, they get them all out when they were all little, and they sort them out, and they, they giggle and then laugh about what they look like when they're little. And they got a picture out. It was one of Patty and I, and I says, wow, you were really good looking back then. And uh, I could tell that... Ah, I probably didn't say that right. <laughs> Created a little bit of a response. So, were we still married? Sure we were. We just weren't as happily married as we were a few minutes earlier. <laughs> uh, so we might say that I sinned 
We're still married, but there was a consequence for a little bit of time until I fixed it. Uh, it wasn't a real quick fix, but I fixed it. Now everything's cool. So the same thing is true with us as children of God. Uh, we don't lose our position. We're forgiven of everything as far as our position is goes. But relationally and practically speaking, sin has a consequence. And when we confess it, then we're forgiven. To confess our sin simply means to own it. I did it, and it wasn't my wife's fault. I did it, it wasn't the president's fault. I did it, it wasn't simply because I had a bad day. I did it, it wasn't because I got up on the wrong side of the bed. I sinned, I blew it. It's my fault. To confess means to own your sin, lock, stock, and barrel, with no justification, no excuses, no blaming. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. let a man examine himself. That means look at your life and think about what you did. Uh, review the day. I just do that as a discipline every night before I go to bed. Number six, as a Christian headed for heaven forever, we still sin. Our sins have significant consequences if not confessed to God. Our sins have significant consequences if not confessed to God. So why do I do the discipline that I do every night? Because I want to be forgiven and cleansed and not to pay the price. Number seven, our unconfessed sin break our, breaks our fellowship with God. We have the capacity to have a relationship with God. We are spiritual beings on the inside. We have a spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We have the ability to sense His presence, to sense His pleasure in us, to sense His leading in our life. We can grow closer and closer in our walk and our relationship with God as spiritual beings. And our sin destroys that. It just messes it all up. Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. So when I looked at the picture and said, wow, you were pretty good looking back then. What happened? A little bit of separation uh, in relationship. Our sin creates the same consequence in our walk with God. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have caused him to hide his face from you. Hide his face from you. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked. 34, 16, the face of the Lord is against evildoers. Ezekiel 39, 24, according to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I dealt with them. I hid my face from them. And then 1 John 1, 9 again, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, cleanse us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, wash us, make us clean. Number eight, our unconfessed sins reduce our prayer power with God. Talking with my son-in-law in Hawaii tonight on the phone, and we got cut off. And I'm talking, and then I stop and wait for a response, and no response came, and I said, hello, hello, Aaron, you there? Did I keep talking? No. Nobody's listening, so why talk? Did you know that when you have sin that you don't confess, that 
God doesn't listen to your prayers. Nobody's on the other end. You can pray to your blue in the face, and God won't listen to your prayers if you have unconfessed sin in your life. In fact, the Bible says that your prayer is an abomination to him. That's more than simply not getting listened to. Uh, Psalm 66, 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The Lord will not hear. Psalms, uh, Isaiah 59, 1, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear so that he does not hear. Micah 3, 4, then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. Psalms 34, 15, eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry, to their cry. So I confess sin at the end of the day, but I always examine my life and confess all known sin before I start to pray because I don't want to spend 30 minutes praying and have nothing happen because God wasn't listening. Number nine, our unconfessed sin brings God's discipline into our lives. God's discipline into our lives. I don't know if that sounds enjoyable to you, being disciplined by God. It doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun to me. Hebrews 12, 5, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. My mom used to whip us with a willow switch. In fact, we had to go cut our own switch. That seemed like cruel and unusual punishment, doesn't it? And then before she would switches with the switch, she would say, I'm doing this because I love you. I remember thinking, yeah, right. God says that the Lord loves. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He disciplines those whom he loves. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. Now, read this carefully with me. This is like the best deal going in the Bible. If we judged ourselves rightly, that means you look at your own life and you see your sin. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. We would not be judged by who? God. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So here's the deal God gives us. He said, you do it, I won't. You don't, I will. And if I do, then I will discipline you. That motivates me. I like the idea of not getting switched by God. And so he said, if you judge yourself rightly, I won't. You don't, I will. If I do, then I will discipline you. Number 10, our unconfessed sins cause guilt. Takes away our joy and self-worth. We read every parenting book ever written while we were raising our eight kids. Good ones, bad ones. We went to every seminar we could find to go to. One of the things that we heard regularly, especially from that which was less than Christian in their approach, was the most important job you have as a parent is to instill self-worth in your kids. Help them to succeed at life so they'll feel good about who they are. And so as we raised our kids, we came to the conclusion that probably a better way to give self-worth than on the basis of their performance in basketball. 
or the grades they get in school. And, uh, and so one of the conclusions that I came to is that God gives worth and value. God is the one who says to us, well done. And we sense it in our spirit. We sense his pleasure in us. And when he is pleased with us, we have a self-worth that's healthy and strong. And there is nothing that will damage that as much as sin that we don't confess. And so as we raised our kids, we were really diligent about teaching this principle. When you sin, own it. When you sin, confess it. Because you can hide it if you want, but God sees it and consequences come into your life. One of them is, is you're going to feel like dirt. And there's nothing you can do or say to make up for that. And so own your sin when you steal a cookie. And I say, who took the cookie? You raise your hand and say, Dad, it was me. I did it. Now with me, you know, it's kind of important. With God, it's super important because he knows. He knows. And he's the one who will fill you with joy and with a sense of worth and value because you're clean. He's forgiven you of your sins. Psalms 38, 17, for I am ready to fall. My sorrow is continually before me. I'm full of anxiety because of my sin. Psalms 51, 7, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of of thy salvation, sustain me with a willing spirit. Those are all blessings that come from owning, confessing our sin. Number 11, our unconfessed sins take away our energy and health. <clears throat> I asked one of our doctors, I think it was Dr. Irvin, if he were here, I'd ask him if it was, but I asked him, I said, what's the number one reason people come in to see you as a doctor? Number one reason was they're tired. And they're convinced that because they're tired, they've got some disease or some, something wrong or some deficiency or something. And the only thing that really cures most of them is a sugar pill. So yeah, this will fix you. And uh, why do people get tired? You know, the number one reason why people get tired is because of unconfessed sin. Psalms 32, 1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. In his spirit, there's no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, that is, I didn't confess it, I didn't own it, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality, that is, my energy, my strength, was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave me the guilt of my sin. I will confess my transgressions, and you forgave the guilt of my sins. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. let a man examine himself, and so then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Speaking of communion, we always ought to practice this principle before communion. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. If you don't judge the body rightly, for this reason many among you are weak, weak and sick, and a number sleep. That means they're dead. God killed them. Sin, unconfessed, results in weakness, sickness, and even death. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. And one of those disciplines 
is exhaustion. Number 12, faithfully examining our life and confessing our sin will result in growing freedom from the power of sin. So we're talking about how to become holy. Well, sin has a, a, an addictive uh, power. It gets a hold of us. And you've said this with Paul. Paul said, the thing I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. I find myself saying the same thing over and over and over again. Oh, Lord, this is like the 10,000th time I confess this sin to you. I'm sure glad there's not a quota on it. But when you confess, you confess. Every time you do, that sin becomes less addictive, less, uh, has less of a grip on you, and you become increasingly more free from that sin as you confess it and own it. Uh, he will forgive and he will cleanse. Number 13, faithfully examining our life, confessing our sin will result in our being used by God to do his work. A lot of Christians are on the bench. God doesn't put them in the game. They get nothing to do that matters because they're not clean. God does not use an unclean vessel. doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but it does mean that you're honest and you're open and you confess all known sin to God and he cleanses you, forgives you of that sin. You become usable by him when that's true of you. But if you ignore your sin, if you justify your sin, if you just pretend like it doesn't matter, then you're going to be on the bench doing nothing that matters for God. I was on, my, on the bench most of my athletic career through high school and college. I played basketball and baseball, and I wrestled, and I was a great teammate, and I was a great practice player. But through four years of basketball, I was in the game maybe five minutes. I think we were like 120 points ahead or something like that. And uh, so there was no danger of me messing the score up, and I got to play. I hated riding on the bench. But that's a long time ago. It doesn't matter much now, but what does matter is if God has me on his bench. Psalms 51, wash me, I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. I will teach transgressors your ways. That's what I want to do. And sinners will be converted to you. 2 Timothy 2.21, Therefore, if a man cleanses himself, you do that by confessing sin. If, you can, if a man cleanses himself in these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful, 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 useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Number 14, the most powerful motivation in life is our love for Jesus. Our faithful confession of our sins causes our love for Jesus to grow stronger and stronger. Jesus told a parable, a story to a rich dude that was having a banquet that he invited Jesus to and there was a woman there that was a prostitute and she came and was anointing, uh, anointing him and washing his feet and the, the, the rich self-righteous dude was critical of Jesus and he says you know you haven't even given me water to wash my feet she's not stopped since I got here washing my feet with her tears and the reason is because she has been forgiven much. 
You've been forgiven little. Therefore, she loves me much. You love me little. And so the more we are forgiven by Jesus, the more we love him, the more we confess our sin, the more we are aware of what we've been given as a gift of eternal life in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.14, love con- uh, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So I become motivated, driven to serve the Lord, to please him because of all that he's done for me. 15, every Christian will stand before Jesus at the end of their life and give an account of their life. There will be eternal consequences for unconfessed sin. So when I get to the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians uh, of 5.10 says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, give an account, a reckoning of our life, be rewarded, recompensed for the deeds we do, have done in this life that are good, and there will be a consequence for the things that we have done that are wrong. I don't know what those consequences are. Uh, I suggested that we spend eternity in Fargo or North Dakota rather than in the New Jerusalem. I don't, we'll see what it is. But the, it's clear that there are consequences for unconfessed sins. So when I stand before Jesus, he's going to open up the book and he's going to say, oh, yeah, here you pastored, you raised eight kids, the rewards will come for that. And then there's the other book over here of sins. When he opens that book up with my name on it, there's going to be my name at the top and then there's going to be a page and there's going to be these black smudges all the way down, just black smudges. Next page, black smudges. Nothing. Why? Because I was careful every night before I went to sleep to examine my life, to review the day, and to confess all known sin to God, and they got erased. So, if you are careless, don't think it's that big a deal, just would rather ignore your sin, and you go weeks and months without ever confessing a single sin to God, and then you get in a car wreck and stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. When he opens that book, there's going to be, whoo, whoo. Now, I don't know what the consequences are. You're not going to get sent to hell. But the fact is, there are consequences clear in Scripture. And I just would like to have a blank page. And that's a gift. It's a gift given to all of us. Why would we not experience that gift? Because we're apathetic, we're lazy, we're self-righteous, we don't like to face our own sin, any number of reasons. We simply don't take advantage and don't do what God has given us as a blessing. Hebrews 9.27, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die, after this comes judgment. Ecclesiastes 12.14, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Matthew 12, 36, I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they will render account for it in the day of judgment. Psalms 9, 7, the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Romans 14, 10, we, this is written to Christians, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. It is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God, so, so then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. He who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, that without partiality, but I won't. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That big eraser gets... Uh, 16, because of our pride and natural desire to protect ourselves from shame, we all tend to ignore our sin, justify it, blame, it, blame others for it. You know, it's kind of interesting conversation piece. Why would anybody with any sense ignore their own sin? Why would anybody not take advantage of this great promise that if we would confess, own it, God would cleanse, God would forgive, God would erase. The consequences that I've mentioned would be taken out of our life. Our fellowship would be restored. Our prayer power would max out uh, because we practice this simple discipline. Well, it's because of this thing we're born with. We don't like to be shamed, humiliated, and so we just ignore our sin and we blame others for it. Genesis 3.12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So... That's my excuse. It's my wife's fault. 17, ignoring, justifying, blaming others for our sin results in our conscience getting calloused and we will become more and more blind to our own faults. Our conscience gets calloused. We become blind, unable to see what we've done wrong. I've done a lot of marriage counseling over the years, and it's amazing how much of the time when the wife talks about their marriage, it's her husband's fault, and the husband talks about the marriage, it's the wife's fault. I think, are they for real, or is that just their perception? I think they think that's really true, that 99% of the problem they have is their spouse's fault. Why would that be? Well, because they can't see their own fault. They become callous to their own sin, blinded. Ephesians 4.18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, they having, becoming, they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now, we haven't gone that far, but the potential for callousness is in each of us. Matthew 15.14, let them alone, they are blind. Blind guides of the blind. We're blind to our own faults, our own sin. 18, our blind spots cause conflict with other people, and they are a key reason why we get our feelings hurt. Blind spots, that is, we don't see what our faults are. 19, self-examination isn't something we do naturally, so whenever there is any relational struggle, we should use it as a reminder and motivation to examine our own life carefully and confess all known sin to God. So if I get in a conflict with you and I get to the end of the day and I journal about it, I'm going to assume that I'm 100% the reason that we had a conflict. Probably not all my fault, but I'm going to take the blame. 
The reason is because if I do that, I will think about what I said before, during, and after that created, and it will help me to see things about me that I tend not to be aware of. Same thing, especially with my wife, if there's a little bit of a, 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 a argument, I will assume 100% of the blame as I write about it in my journal before, during, and after so that I can discover what the blind spots are in my life. <clears throat> Number 20, an important part of confession is repentance. That is simply the choice to change. The choice to change. And so if I recognize that I said something that was offensive or hurt uh, Patty's feelings, that I will say, I will never do that again. I probably will, but I make that statement. I will never do that again. Lord, would you grant me the grace, the strength to keep that commitment? Psalm 7, 12, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword, his bent his bow, made it ready. Ezekiel 18, 30, therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent, turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. So I'm eight minutes late. But Jerry started eight minutes late, so it's his fault. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that we each will understand the principles, the guidelines, the promises that you've given us, uh, the way we can live our life uh, and understand what to do and how to do it. We have been given by you the command of pursuing righteousness, and that's not a mystery. You've given us all the, the guidelines, all the principles that we need if we'll just follow them. Pray that each one of us will be careful to examine our life regularly, if not daily, and confess all known sin to you and experience the beauty of the promises of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for doing that for us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.